<laughs> R-E-S-P-E-C-T, right? It's all we ask is equal respect for women and for men. Unfortunately, all too often, women are simply not accorded that respect. They are not taken as seriously as men. And so often we find that a man is assumed to know what he's talking about until he proves otherwise. And for a woman, it's the other way around, right? I'm sure a lot of... I can see women in the room nodding, okay? <laughs> now, <laughs> the academic formulation of this is, why don't we accord as much authority to women as to men? And that's what I'm now researching and writing a book about. And in the process of doing this research, I have been talking to a lot of really successful women right at the top of their game, former prime ministers and presidents, chair of the Federal Reserve, people like that, to ask them if they've experienced this problem. Well, guess what? Almost all of them have. Now, you might say these are exactly the wrong women to be talking to because they clearly have enormous authority, but my view was, if even they have experienced this, what hope for the rest of us, right? So, first thing you do is define the word authority. So I went to the very first result on Google, which is the Oxford Dictionary Online, and it refers to the two types of authority that I want to talk about, which is power and influence and expertise, being authoritative on a subject. And then I started reading it, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Let's have a look at the examples that they give. So, yes, he had absolute authority over his subordinates. He has the natural authority of one who is used to being obeyed. He hit the ball with authority. He was an authority on the stock market. Every single example, a man. QED, right? I wasn't even looking for that. But I think women can hit balls as well, and even perhaps with their little minds understand the stock market. So I suspect that a lot of women in the room will have had this experience. It's a very famous old cartoon from Punch, right? So you're sitting around a table, and you have this suggestion or an idea. Nobody reacts to it at all. Fifteen minutes later, one of the guys says it, and everybody says, oh, yes, brilliant, how clever of you. Um, even when you're really senior, unfortunately, this sort of thing still happens. So uh, I'm going to dot these quotes through the talk like little chocolate chips in a cookie just to keep you entertained. So here is Shubi Rao, former treasurer of Alphabet, which is the parent company of Google. She says she has to constantly prove herself over and over again. When a guy says something at a meeting, the others will say, yeah, that sounds great, I think we should do it. When a woman says it, they'll say, oh, I think we ought to look into that. I think we need more data. I think we need to think about it. I don't know if that's really going to work. And she says, I get challenged a lot constantly, and it's become a way of life. She's not alone. Uh, I don't know whether you might have read at the beginning of the Obama administration, um, there used to be a political staffers meeting every morning, and three of the staffers were women. And they had exactly this experience, and it drove them crazy. So they got together, and they devised what they called their amplification strategy, so as soon as one of the women suggested something, one of the others would chip in and say, that's a really good idea, I think we should do it. And then so would the third. And that was the only way they actually got themselves heard. Interruptions, okay, it's not just a question of being challenged and not listened to. It's often being interrupted, which, as you all know, male or female, is very annoying. <laughs> you can't get your point across. The interrupter, in effect, is suggesting that his, probably is his, point of view is more interesting or more important than yours. It's basically a way of silencing you and undermining your authority. So here is an academic study. The researchers looked at 31 conversations, 10 between two men, 10 between two women, and 11 between a man and a woman. And the results were very striking. So there were seven interruptions in total for the first two groups combined. And for the third, 
There were 48. 46 of them by a man. Okay. Now, those of you with uh, better and less middle-aged eyesight than mine will see that this is actually quite old, this research finding. So you might think, oh gosh, things have improved, Think, you know, life was terribly sexist in the 1970s, it's a lot better now. Well, uh, Supreme Court, okay, you don't get much more authoritative than the US Supreme Court. Here's the fabulous Ruth Bader Ginsburg. As recently as 2015, big study by Northwestern University of all the oral transcripts of Supreme Court hearings and women make up one-third of the Supreme Court justices but had to suffer two-thirds of all interruptions, almost all by male advocates or justices, but they only made 4% of all interruptions. Now, you might think that having expertise would increase your authority, right? I mean, it stands to reason. This is certainly true of men, but bizarrely, it can actually undermine women particularly in experimental conditions. Now, I found this very hard to study. So they took 143 business students, half and half, male and female, and asked each of them to read some information and watch a video simulation of a bushfire. They were then asked to rank in order the 12 most important objects that would help someone survive a bushfire. Now, a group of experts in survival had already ranked these, and so there was, there was the proper order, um, the, the most correct order, and each of these individuals was marked against that order, and those of the highest scores were deemed to be experts. The women and men scored equally well, and actually the women and men were equally confident of their ability to do this task. And they were then put into small groups, and each of them had an expert in it, but nobody knew who the expert was, and nor did the expert know Okay, because no one was told their scores. Now, the results I found very surprising. This didn't perhaps surprise me. The women exerted less influence within their groups than men because the groups were asked to collaborate and come out with what the group's view was of what the ranking should be. Okay, so the women would argue for a ranking, but they wouldn't necessarily get it. This is interesting. Female experts were perceived as less expert than female non-experts. <laughs> And they were significantly less influential than the female non-experts. While the male experts were significantly more influential, and as a result, the groups with the male experts outperformed groups with female experts. Why, you ask yourself? Well, two big reasons. One, there were lower initial expectations of women's expertise. So people didn't expect the women to know what they were talking about. And sadly to say, both women and men thought this. And secondly... When you're an expert, you often have to disagree with other people in the room and say, no, I think you're wrong, and I think I'm right, and this is why I think I'm right. People don't like women doing that, sadly. Now, you might well say, okay, maybe women shouldn't be accorded authority for this expertise because they're not as expert, and they don't know as much, and we men are much cleverer, and we know more, and maybe our lack of respect for women's expertise is entirely justified. Well... Here is a very interesting scientific control, which sounds anecdotal, but I believe is very scientific. So we've got two people here, okay? They are both uh, tenured professors at Stanford, and they both, by coincidence, decide to transition to the opposite gender in middle age. Okay, so Barbara Barras becomes Ben. He's a professor of neuroscience. And he said, I have had the thought a million times. I'm just taken more seriously now. I can finish a whole sentence without being interrupted by a man. And my work is taken more seriously. The same damned work, as he put it, is taken more seriously now. And in fact, someone was overheard who didn't know his history, was overheard saying at the back of one of his seminars, 
Ben Barris gave a great seminar today, but then he's so much better than his sister. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Jonathan Roughgarden becomes Joan. He was a professor of evolutionary biology, very well respected within the university. He sat on the university senate committee. His pay was in the top half of his cohort of professors. And he was doing quite contentious research, but he was treated with great respect. So Jonathan becomes Joan, and guess what, he says. <laughs> nobody listens, she says, by then nobody listens to her in meetings. She gets interrupted. Her pay falls down to the bottom 10% of her cohort, and she's not asked to serve on any committees. But most interestingly, she said, I was attacked for my research, but I was attacked very personally. And people would say, people, A, they would shout at me in quite intimidating ways, and they would say things like, you haven't read the literature, or you don't understand the statistics. She said, no one would have ever said that to me when I was a man. Now, okay, you might say this is just two people. It's very anecdotal. I think it's very scientific because only one variable has changed, right? They're exactly the same person with the same knowledge, the same intellect, the same expertise, the same body of work and the same personality. And they both notice an enormous transformation in how they're treated. And actually bigger studies of transgender people, particularly trans men, have found exactly this. Trans men suddenly find they're being treated with much more respect. But all the expertise in the world isn't going to help, or as we saw in some cases, hinder women gaining authority if they're not even being listened to in the first place. Now, I've talked a little bit about this dynamic in meetings, but I also want to extend this to whether heard and read and recommended and disseminated as widely as men's. Or are they perhaps being a bit overlooked? So here are two women I spoke to for my book. You don't get much more senior than that in this country. Baroness Hale, president of the Supreme Court, she said she recently invited a man to a meeting with her and her male deputy and realised that she was actually surprised afterwards because the man had directed almost all his questions and comments to her rather than her deputy. And she was surprised because that doesn't often happen, even though she's in charge. Cressida Dick, Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, goes out on patrol with a male officer, and she says, members of the public almost always talk to him rather than me, even though she has all these glamorous epaulettes on her shoulders. Uh, Of course, most of the academic research has been done on the academy, because that's what academics are interested in. So um, within academia, is women's work actually being heard and read, let alone given the authority that it deserves? So this was a very big study done of colloquium speakers, three and a half thousand talks at the 50 top universities in six subjects designed to cover a range of supposedly male and female subjects. Um, And so they controlled for the gender and seniority of the available speakers. So there might have been fewer women able to be invited or less senior ones. They controlled for that. Even after that, men were still 20% more likely to be speakers. So they thought, well, maybe the women are asked, but turn it down. Maybe they have childcare responsibilities. They can't take the time off. Uh, No, equally likely to accept the invitations. Well, maybe women don't think that such an opportunity is so valuable to their career. We all know it is very valuable, uh, but actually, no, they're equally likely to value it. Uh, Maybe it's very hard just to get equal numbers of men and women. Well, actually, when there were female chairs of these colloquia, they invited 49% women. When there were male chairs, they invited... 30%. So it can be done, but it just often isn't. Now, another set of studies, lots of studies actually, have looked at citations in academic journals. If you cite someone else's paper, you're in effect according their research authority. 
every, pretty much every study shows that women's papers are cited less often than men's. This, I think, is the biggest. It's five and a half million research papers. You can see the red lines are the female authors and the blue lines are the male authors. And in every single permutation, they get cited less. Uh, this is also true, actually, of university reading lists, that on the whole it tends to be books by men that are put on reading lists much more than books by women. But I want to go a bit wider than that into general reading habits. So I'm going to give you 10 seconds or 30 maybe just to think quickly about the last five books you've read or bought. See if you can remember what they are and ask yourself who they're written by. I'm not going to expose any of you. You probably can't remember, but I think it's worth thinking about because several studies have shown that of the books men read, about 80% are by other men and only 20% by women, whereas we women will read about 50-50 by men and by women. Okay. Now, this matters because, as I said, if you're not even listening to our views or reading our work in the first place, you're definitely not going to take us as seriously or accord us authority. Now, I'm afraid that this is rather reflected in the book review pages of newspapers and magazines. Uh, there's something called the Vida Count, uh, which looks at this every year. And I've taken here the New York Review of Books um, because it's probably the most prestigious. You can't read it all. But what this top line on the right shows is that 77% of the books that they review are by men. And the next one down shows that 76% of the reviewers are male. So it's basically blokes recommending books by other blokes. Okay. Um, so maybe men just write many more brilliant books than women. Well, I doubt it. And I did manage to find figures for last year for literary fiction, which is New York Review of Books type of book. Nine out of the top, nine out of the top ten best-selling literary fiction titles last year were by women. Okay. So let's move on to Twitter. Now I know a lot of academics rather disdain Twitter, but um, in journalism, Twitter, as you all know, is incredibly important for individual journalists. It gets our voices heard, it gets us into the, into the discourse for the specialism that we write about. I used to be a political journalist. In political journalism, Twitter is incredibly important. We all have public conversations with each other on Twitter. We retweet each other's tweets. That's how we put out links to the pieces that we've written or, 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 or the films that we've made. So Twitter is very important. Now, at the last UK general election, a big data company called Listed decided to do a survey of who were the most influential political journalists on Twitter. Now, given that Laura Koonsberg, the BBC political editor, is probably the most important political journalist in this country, how many of the top ten do you reckon were female? You don't have to shout it out, but I'm going to tell you it's a big fat zero. Not even Laura Koonsberg was among the top ten most influential political journalists on Twitter. Uh, so, this company, yes? How was that determined? Uh, no, they looked at influencers who were people who had big Twitter followings and asked them and, and had a look to see how often they retweeted or commented on uh, a, a political journalist's tweet. So, they actually measured it statistically. In other words, how much were these tweets amplified by other people who mattered? Okay. Um, so, they were very d d concerned by these findings. So, they did a deeper dive to try and find out why. And what they discovered was that the male influencers were nearly five times more likely to retweet or comment on male political journalists than female political journalist tweets. 
So then they thought, okay, there may be other reasons. There are more male political journalists than female ones, so they corrected for that, they controlled for that. And the male ones tweeted very slightly more often and slightly more contentiously, because contentious tweets tend to get retweeted more. And even when they controlled for all these variables they could think of, the male influencers were still two and a half times more likely to retweet or comment on the male political journalists, which I think is sort of the best measure of naked sexism on, on Twitter, really. Um, it's even worse, in a way, in the US. So male political journalists reply to other men 91.5% of the time, and they retweet other men 75% of the time. So I thought, well, maybe the pool is even more skewed there than it is here. No, actually, women make up nearly 50% of Beltway journalists in the US. So expertise. I thought, I better just illustrate this slide, otherwise it will look like a boring list. So I just took the first half of Google Images screenshots of expertise. And oh, look, man, 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 Bart Simpson, before you get to a tiny woman's face there. Oh, and then we've got one woman being told something expert by a man. Yeah, exactly, before you can even get a woman. So just to sum up, women aren't believed to be as expert as men, even if they are, by women as well as men. They find it harder to influence a group of people, including women as well as men. They're challenged more frequently than men. They're ignored, interrupted, and talked over much more frequently, particularly by men. Often they're not listened to or read in the first place, particularly by men. And their work isn't, as re isn't recommended as often to other people, particularly by men. So on that cheering thought, let's move on to power and leadership. Um, I really like this cartoon, but you have to read the speech bubble quite carefully. <laughs> okay, so another little chocolate chip. I uh, interviewed Amber Rudd, who is the Work and Pension Secretary, Cabinet Minister here in the UK. And she told me the story that recently one of the new intake of MPs, a youngish man, came up to her and said, just so you know, Amber, if there is a leadership contest, I'd really want to back you, but I think we've had enough women for now. <laughs> so one woman turns out to be a bad prime minister. It means the whole of the rest of her gender is excluded from this job. Okay. If we're going to talk about power and leadership and women, who else but Hillary Clinton? Uh, it's just the best case study. I might even do an entire chapter of my book on her. So 66% of Americans said that Americans weren't ready to elect a woman to high political office. And I'm afraid this was rather borne out because the percentage who had a strongly unfavorable, this is not just unfavorable, but strongly unfavorable view of her, was by far the highest for a Democratic nominee since the question was first asked in 1980 despite the fact that everyone agreed she was probably the best qualified candidate for the presidency ever in terms of her political experience. Now, she may have been dislikable in sorts of ways. Hell, Donald Trump is dislikable. Um, but 52% had a... Sorry, uh, I'm about to say 52% of white men in particular had a strongly unfavourable view of her compared with only 32% for Obama in 2012, 20% for him in 2008, despite him being black, and 24% for John Kerry in 2004. These items were all for sale at the Republican National Convention. Okay, two fat thighs, two small breasts. In case you can't read it, on the back of Donald Trump's T-shirt here, she's falling off the back of his motorbike, and it says, if you can read this, the bitch fell off. It's really disgusting, isn't it? 
She's not the only female political leader or putative um, political leader to get this sort of treatment. I expect you all recognise Julia Gillard, who was Australia's first Prime Minister and made the very famous speech about misogyny. I talked to her close friend and colleague, Mike Rann, who was president of, of her party, and he, well, you can read it. You know, he, he said she was denigrated and diminished because of her gender, because of her clothing, her looks, because she wasn't married, because she didn't have children. We saw an attempt by large segments of the media and by her political opponents to try to delegitimise her as Prime Minister because of her sex. They're, again, the most disgusting pornographic cartoons with her with a dildo strapped on her. There was a radio shock jock who said that um, she should put, be put in a chuff bag and thrown out to sea to drown. When her beloved father died, uh, someone else said he'd died of shame because of what she'd done. And you sort of think, would anyone say that about a man in that position? Well, there's actually some academic research that asks exactly this question. Both Julia Gillard and Malcolm Turnbull toppled their rivals. This is what happens in Australian politics, right? You topple your rival within your party to become Prime Minister. Nearly 50% of the articles in the media about her contained words like murderer, backstabbing, knifing, decapitation, brutal, ruthless assassination and execute, and she's compared to Lady Macbeth. For him, only 12% of the articles are negative. He's brilliant, successful, clever, cunning, ambitious, had political skills and gravitas, and has taken back the reins. So that gives you an idea of the different ways in which women with power and leadership are treated in the media compared with men. Uh, I've interviewed Jadaranka Kosor, who's the first female prime minister of Ukraine. Well, I've pronounced it wrong, I'm sure. Uh, there you go, Jadaranka Kosor, um, first female prime, president, uh, prime minister of Croatia. And she said, the very moment I became prime minister, I was met with disbelief. How is she going to be able to do this? At the time, Croatia was in the throes of the financial crisis. It was also negotiating to join the EU, and those negotiations had become completely deadlocked. People were saying she won't be able to do it, she'll lead us into complete failure. And she says at the time, the head of the European Commission was Barroso, and during our first meeting, she says, he also expressed disbelief because these negotiations had been blocked. He literally looked me up and down and said, well, your predecessor, who was a man, couldn't do it. I didn't think there was any way you could. <laughs> Within three months... She had unblocked the negotiations. Croatia joined the EU, and when I went to Zagreb to interview her, it was festooned with EU flags. So have a nice look at this. Why does it all happen? <laughs> look a bit more closely. Um, <laughs> well, centuries of patriarchy, of course. Centuries of being told men are better than women, men should lead, women should nurture. Um, associations within our brains, heuristic shortcuts that simply lead us to associate male with leader and authority, woman with, oh, isn't she lovely and she looks after children, right? It's called unconscious bias for a reason. We don't always realise that we have it. I have it myself. I'm writing a book about this. I will occasionally hear perhaps a young woman being interviewed on the radio and she might have quite a high voice and sound a bit childish the way that women can but men can't because their voices break. And I'll actually find myself thinking, I wonder if she knows what she's talking about. And I'll go, stop it, listen to what she's saying and judge her by the content of it, which I then do. So we have to spot that we're doing it, right, in order to correct for it. But we all do it. Some men, and I've deliberately put some here, some men's fear of emasculation. There are some men who find it very uncomfortable to have women in positions of power over them. 
or indeed running their country. I've talked to psychotherapists about this and they claim that it's all to do with men being reminded of some men being reminded of their extreme vulnerability when they were very small and they were completely dependent upon their mother for nurture and care and this made them feel uncomfortable and weak when they were reminded of it you know you, you often hear men saying oh she reminds me of my mother you never hear and, and it's, it's taken to be an insult right whereas if we said he reminds me of my father it's not really value laden is it and you think oh i wonder in what way so that's what it comes down to boys and men's overconfidence Okay, not all boys and men, but a lot. One of the most interesting and, and for me slightly distressing pieces of research I've come across in my studies is that if you ask parents to estimate the intelligence of their children, they are likely on average to estimate their son's IQ at 115, which in itself is hilarious because the average ought to be 100, right? Uh, at 115, and their daughters at 107. Despite the fact that girls develop earlier than boys, they have a bigger vocabulary than boys, and they do better at school than boys, and the IQ distribution is actually completely identical, except at very far extremes. So, as a result, it's perhaps not surprising that adult men, when you ask them to estimate their IQ, estimate it at seven points higher than adult women do. But it's not accurate, okay? It's not an accurate representation of the facts. It's simply what has been instilled into both boys and girls, and then men and women. So we then have the problem of girls' and women's underconfidence. So what do women do about that? If they're underconfident, they get rolled over. But if they start to display the same confidence as men, we get into this double bind in which they get disliked. Okay. So I became a section editor of my newspaper, national newspaper, The Times, when I was pretty young, and there were only two women at morning conference out of 22. So if Bridget was away, I was the only one. It was, I was very much outnumbered. And the men displayed this fantastic confidence, bullshitting, blustering their way through conference. And I realised if I didn't match them, I wouldn't get anywhere in this career. So I you know, decided the logical thing to do was at least outwardly to appear as confident as my male colleagues, which I did. And very soon I got caricatured in Private Eye, which is the satirical magazine here in the UK, as Marianne Bighead. Okay? <laughs> So as a woman, you really can't win. You're either told, oh, you should lean in, you should be more assertive, the reason you haven't succeeded is you're not confident enough, as soon as you are, you are disliked for it. Incongruity. This is a theory of sociologists, they call it the status incongruity hypothesis, which is that because we're unused to having women in positions of leadership and power and authority, it makes us just feel uncomfortable, it feels incongruous, it feels wrong, and therefore we're more likely to dislike them for it. Uh, there's thoughtlessness. I mean, I talked recently, I talked earlier on about reading habits and about Twitter, about inviting male speakers to colloquia. You can do this sort of thing without realising it and without intending to. I'm sure if any of you found that five of the last five books you read were by men, I'm sure you didn't think, oh, women haven't got anything interesting to say. It just happened to be the next book you chose, the next book you picked up. But you can change this once you start to think about it. Same with following on tw Twitter. And then, of course, there's just downright sexism. Not much I can do about that, but I think guys can call each other out on that. So, can it change? Yes. I'm going to talk first of all about how we, just as human beings, can help it to change. I'm then going to talk specifically about journalism and the media. We can look at the authors of the books we read. We can check who we're following and retweeting on Twitter. We can listen to women, actively listen to women, with the same attention that we do to men and actually sort of check whether we're doing that. 
We can stop ourselves interrupting or talking over women. We can notice if we're challenging them more than men or assuming they know less than a man would. This is very important, I think. Never mistake confidence or bluster for competence because they're not the same thing. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> and, and this is something particularly for men. I think please try and call out other guys if they're being sexist. I know it's difficult, and I know you might think, oh, he's going to think I'm a worse if I say that. But actually, I think it's important for men to realise that it ought to be as socially unacceptable to be sexist as to be racist. I mean, frankly, if you're just judging somebody on their genitals, just like judging them on the colour of their skin, that is just wrong. It's downright wrong. And I think they will only start to think that it is downright wrong if other guys start saying it. If we say it, they'll just think, oh, God, yeah, there she goes again, and roll, roll her eyes, right? So... What about the media? What can we do? There are so many different statistics on the media landscape, but the media is so important because it is the main source of authority for most of us. If we want to know what's going on in the world, where do we turn to? We turn to the media. And if the media is dominated by men, then people are naturally going to think men just know more about this sort of thing than women do. They're going to think of men as more authoritative. And what they will get is very much seen through a male lens. So this is a US study um, you can see you know, TV, print, internet and wires. In almost everyone, men are... Well, in all, all of them, men dominate, some more than others. Um, there was a recent study done here in the UK of uh, executives within British newspapers, and still two-thirds of them are men. Uh, when I first did a study for women in journalism 25 years ago, it was 80-20. It's now 66-33. It's a bit of progress, but over 25 years, couldn't we do a bit better than that? Um, what do women report on? Oh, look, all the really important things. I don't include sports, some of you do. Um, but, you know, <laughs> news, politics, business, the economy, arts, it's men. And then, I'm afraid, the fluffy stuff, health, lifestyle, entertainment, is women. And they do tend to get pushed into those fields of expertise. I mean, obviously, more, women are probably more likely to choose fashion. But apart from that, actually, I think they tend to get corralled into those areas. Now, the other area in which the media can make a great difference is in the sources of authority whom they quote, the experts that they quote when they write stories. Now, I chose this one because it was just so dramatic. This is in the 2012 presidential election, and it's on specifically women's issues. Okay, abortion, birth control, planned parenthood, and women's rights. And the blue parts of the circle are male experts, and the red ones are female. Even on things like abortion and birth control, right? So, can the media change? God, yes. So, think about who you quote as experts. Now, there was a, there's a science journalist who went through his entire output for The Atlantic for a year and discovered he was citing about 25% of the expert scientists he was quoting were women. So he thought, as an experiment this year, I'm going to make it 50%. He said it was easy peasy. It required just a few minutes more work. So instead of just going to the classic standard go-to people, he just looked to see if there were any women doing interesting stuff in this field. There always were. And he ended up citing 50% women. It really wasn't hard. We must appoint more women to positions of authority in the media. So that's columnists, it's critics, it's anchor women, it's specialist correspondents, and importantly, editors, executives within these organisations, so to try to make sure that not everything is seen through a male lens. 
don't exile female journalists to fluffy subject areas. Because it's important that politics is written about by as many women as men. There are as many female, in fact, slightly more female voters than men. So it really matters. I remember when I first started writing about politics, and I would occasionally bring up the subject of childcare, which is incredibly important, even just for economists, in terms of getting more women into the labour market. And the men around the table would literally roll their eyes. That doesn't belong in politics, right? That's changed, thank goodness. And since a lot more women got elected to, to the Labour Party, they started making it an issue, till finally the male Chancellor of the Exchequer, Gordon Brown, actually gave a whole budget which was devoted to childcare. But these things have to be pushed through by women's voices. We need to review as many books by women as by men on, on, on the books pages. Again, you're sending out a signal to your readers about what's important, who is authoritative and have as many female critics as men, not just in books, but in films and plays and uh, every other subject area. Look at your use of pictures. Oh, I should say use of pictures. I don't know if any of you have seen, I should have put it up on here. Um, soon after Theresa May became Prime Minister, there was a photo of her with the Scottish First Minister, who also happens to be a woman, and it was cropped from the waist down, and they were both wearing skirts, and it was their legs like this. And uh, the caption was Lexit, as opposed to Brexit, and an entire piece comparing their legs. Written by a woman. Written by a woman. Yeah. Really? Are women just being used as photographs, uh, in photographs in newspapers because they're decorative? When I was acting editor of the Times, I used to edit the Times on Sundays, the Monday paper, and our night news editor, our backbench editor, was a very dinosaurial old man. And he used to shout across to the picture desk when he was looking, reading about a woman in a story. He'd say, is she photogenic? And I'd say to him, you never ask that about men. So basically, he only wanted pictures of women in the paper who were eye candy, but he didn't care if they were men. And finally, we need to check our language. So always ask, would we say the same of a man? And if not, just cut it out. And actually, this is the best exercise to use. It's what I call flipping. Just turn it over and say, would I be comparing, I don't know, David Cameron and Alex Salmon's legs? No, then don't do it. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so basically, we just have to be more aware. Because the media plays such a huge part in how societies think of themselves and how people think of each other and of themselves. And if what I said about the undermining of, of women's authority worries you, which I hope it does, there's actually a lot that you can do about it. And in fact, you probably have more power to change things than, than anyone else because the media is so influential. So over to you. Thank you very much.